We're glad you're all here, and if you would, as you're seated, open the Word of God to Genesis chapter 23. And we'll read this chapter together, and then we'll study together, and Lord willing, uh, He will implant this Word of God into our souls, which is able to save our souls. And He will be glorified, and we'll be changed, and we'll be edified as well. Genesis 23, beginning in verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of all the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field which, with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, again, we ask, God, for your help, your understanding, your wisdom, God, to learn, to study, to apply your word given to us. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith. Lord, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've heard the advice given to Christians before. Many times in the past, you've probably heard it. You may have even said it yourself. Christians need to make sure they're not too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. You've probably heard that before. The quote is attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes, senior, the the senior one, the the father of of the more well-known junior who was in the American government. Johnny Cash used it in a song as well. But it's, it's meant to be a, a critique of religious people who have their heads in the clouds, who get together and really don't care much for the people around them, 
Uh, they just want to get together and talk about heaven and getting out of here <laughs> and, and not really being of any good. So is it possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good? Well, if by that you mean, is it possible that we can get our heads stuck in the clouds so much that we don't care about people around us and, it, and we don't even share the gospel with people? If that's what you mean by that, then, well, yeah, that's possible to be so heavens-minded that we're of no earthly good. But if we're truly heavenly-minded, well, well, that's where our mind should be all the time. Because if our mind is really tuned to heaven, that's where God is. That's where his will is happening all the time. And so we're praying, God, will your will, may your will be done here on earth as it is up in heaven. And so our actions will be following where our minds are. Second Corinthians 4 will be true of us. In verse 16, we, he says to us, we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen. That's not where our minds are. That's not where our eyes are. But to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So our minds, our hearts, our eyes are on the eternal things, on the heavenly things. That's where we're focused. And in other words, um, for us to be of any earthly good, we have to be heavenly minded. We've got to have our mind in heaven. Not just the heavens waiting for Jesus to appear in the clouds, though we are waiting for that. But not, not just so we can get out of here, but so that uh, that's where our minds are tuned properly to the, to the whole of who God is, what his word says to us, how he, how he corrects us and teaches us and guides us and, and grows our faith and, and strengthens it through his word. And that's really what's going on for Abraham in Genesis 23. He's got his mind properly, rightly set upward on God and so that he can endure anything that comes along, even the death of his wife. Even the death of his spouse. Now, how do we know that that's what's going on? Genesis 23 doesn't tell us that that's what's happening in Abraham's mind. But Hebrews 11 does. Hebrews 11:13 speaks of the faith of Abraham and Sarah. And the writer says that they died in faith, not having received the, promise, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We just read that Abraham said that. Yep, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're looking for a place to call home. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, which was Ur, or where they were right now, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have gone back. But as it is, Hebrews 11 says, they desire a better country, a better one. That is a heavenly one. And because of that, the writer says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And those thems was talking about Abraham and Sarah, but it's also talking about now us, because God is calling us, God has called us to a better home, a better city, a heavenly city. And so that's how Abraham and Sarah were able to endure all that happened in their lives, by their faith in God, their minds being trained more and more every day toward God, toward that heavenly city that he's prepared for them. Now, what's different about Genesis 23 
from the other chapters before this, because we've been looking at Abraham's life as a, a, a model of faith. That's what Hebrews 11 pointed us back to. It wasn't perfect, but it was a lot of lessons about faith, and we're nearing the end of his life. And so as we look at chapter 23, what's a little bit different is that this chapter is going to be a whole lot more easily relatable to us than the others were. What do I mean? Well, in this chapter, we're dealing now with everyday life in faith. This is, these are issues that we're all most likely going to have to deal with. Just the hard truths of life and death and arrangements afterward and, and difficulty just in life. And we've referenced this before, that Abraham had those few extremes of highs and lows, and we've seen him engaged in those events that, that we're probably not going to have to face, like God coming to us and saying, pack up, pick up, and move to a different country. Right? He's probably not going to tell us, any of, the, any of us, that. He might, and we've got to be willing to go. But, but that was an important lesson of faith, right? Um, muster up your household, God told Abraham. Go form a militia, basically, and take on a stronger army than you. Uh, Lord willing, we're not going to have to be told to do that so that we can go rescue our nephew, like Abraham was told. Or have a struggle in your household that you don't know how to resolve between your wife and your other wife. Lord willing, we'll not be struggling with that or, or having to work through that. Or at 100 years old when you have a son, <laughs> hopefully we're not dealing with that, uh, and then be told to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Th- those were all great big events, huge tests, huge things that were happening in Abraham's life, and, and they've been highly effective at teaching us about a life of faith. But we might have just a little bit of trouble relating to some of those directly, but not here in chapter 23. Not, not this difficulty, this kind of difficulty. The hard circumstances that we can more immediately relate to are found here in this chapter than the other ones before. And this is important for us because as we notice today, we, we call this the, the, the 21st anniversary of some attacks that happened in American soil 21 years ago on September 11th, we understand that that was a big event, and that caused a lot of fear, and that required a lot of faith in God to know that he's still on his throne, that he's working through all of those things that happen in those big events. But again, it's been 21 years, and there have been a lot of those big events that have happened, a lot of big tests, and a lot of valleys and peaks, and a lot of things that happened along the way, but there have been a lot more of these daily, everyday things that have happened that are revealing where our faith is, where our faith needs to be, and that's what Abraham is showing us. No less here in chapter 23 than the other big events, no less in the everyday the common difficulties than the extraordinary circumstances. It's still showing us what it means to believe in God, to live out our faith in difficulty. This is a real-life believer dealing with real-life events. And that's going to be helpful for us because there are five traits that Abraham lives out here that that, that believers who are facing real life, real life circumstances, are are going to be living out. And this is what it looks like. The first one in verses 1 and 2 that we see is that believers facing real life who are heavenly minded are, number one, sorrowful. Sorrowful. Now, Sarah says, live to be 127 years old. That means that she's the only woman in the Bible who allowed her age to be mentioned at the time of her death. <laughs> she is, but that's not what happened. That, that's the way God planned it for us. But she had been born in Ur to a family of 
moon worshipers. And she was named princess. That's what Sarai and Sarah means. And she was, as we've seen, a devoted, faithful wife to Abraham, even to a fault, going along with his self-protection schemes and hiding the truth of their marriage at least twice. But remember, she was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac, and she's now 127, so Isaac is now 37 years old, and he's not married, but she at least got to see the first 37 years of his life. And Isaac himself would mourn over his mother's death all the way up until he married Rebecca, which was going to be three years later. We see that later on in the next chapter. So he loved his mother. His mother was very good to Isaac, and she was a, a very good wife to Abraham. And, and they were in a town called Kiriath Arba, verse 2 says, which by the time Moses wrote this was renamed Hebron. So they're not in Beersheba. But verse 2 shows us that, that Abraham really was saddened. He was sorrowful because of the loss of Sarah. It says that he mourned and wept for her. The, the word mourn is the kind of beating your breast, kind of mourning that is done in the East, the, the lamenting and the mourning and, and the sorrow. The, the word weep here is, is the word for wailing and sobbing and crying and personal sorrow. And now we're not told how old Sarah or Abraham were when they got married, but as she's 127 and he's 137, we know they've been married for at least 62 years. Because when God called Abraham out of Ur at 75 years old, he was already married to Sarah. So this was, a, this was a hard time for Abraham. And what we need to say is that it was okay that this was a hard time for Abraham. It was, it was okay, it was a good thing for him to sorrow over her. But as a general rule, our, our culture is very scared of sorrow very averse to it, and, and even more afraid of death. By and large, death in our culture is really set aside. It's kind of scary. We, we, we don't really know a lot about it. It's been taken out of our view, right? Um, we don't have the funeral processions as much anymore. We don't have um, the viewings of the body when they're gone. People just, look, it's, it's done and over. Let's keep it away. And really what's ended up happening is that it's become a bit mysterious for us, what, what this death looks like. It, it's pushed out of our view. And so now what's mysterious and what, what's strange becomes something that we become afraid of. It, we're fearful of that. So our culture has shunned death and, and sorrow in general. I mean, after all, even the Declaration of Independence says that we have inalienable rights given to us, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Right? And that's been taken to an extreme because sadness is frowned upon. It, it's really, you know, it, it's okay to be sorrowful. It's okay to be sad a little bit, um, but keep it to yourself, right? Keep it out of view. You, you don't want to bring other people down. That's kind of the idea in our culture. You might bring somebody some sadness. And so we look at our culture, and just, just in terms of the antidepressant industry, the market size of that industry in the U.S. accounted for over half of the world paying for drugs that help people feel better. Now, I know that not all of those are taken just because somebody just wants to feel better because they were down for a little bit. But many more people do take them for that reason than maybe wants to be admitted. In fact, in the U.S., it was a $6 billion industry just in the year 2019, the, the latest year those figures are available but as people of faith, 
as people who have faith in God, we cannot and we should not fall into the trap of the world in trying to inoculate ourselves against sorrow, against sadness. And I just want to spend an extra minute or two on this because it, it, it's so frowned upon in our culture. It's such a, a, a touchy subject. Jesus tell, told us in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, In this world, you might have some trouble sometimes. Is that what he says? In this world, he said, you will have trouble. And that word trouble is a big word because it carries the idea of compression. It's pressure. You're going to be squeezed and it's going to be suffering. It's going to be anguish. It's going to be distress in your mind. That's what Jesus says. And we've been talking about how God always fulfills his promises. Um, That's a promise that Jesus makes. And we're all pretty well aware in this room that uh, he's he's faithful to that promise, isn't he? Uh, This world, you will have trouble. Of all people, Christians at least should understand this because we know where it came from. We know where pressure, where compression and and the sorrow and the anguish, we know where it came from, where it started. And it started with mankind's rebellion against God's sin so that we've taken ourselves away from him, the one who is joy, the one who is peace, the one who is love, the one who is good all the time. We took ourselves away from him and we chose ourselves and this world over him. And that brought sickness and illness and disease and sadness and even death. And that wasn't the way that God originally built creation. And it's why the whole creation now groans, Paul talks about to the Corinthians. He says it's groaning. It's in bondage to corruption because of man's sin. Sorrow is now a reality in life. Because of sin, but it's not permanent for everybody. It's not eternal for everybody because those who believe in Jesus Christ, who turn away from their sins, are brought to him, and one day he brings us home to him, and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. We don't have to live an eternity with sadness, with sorrow. But for the time that we're here right now, sorrow is a reality. And so rather than trying to escape it, we need to be acknowledging and experiencing it. And so if you will, just turn ahead to Ecclesiastes 7. So we can look at this together. He said, where is Ecclesiastes? If you turn right to the middle of your Bible, you're probably somewhere in Psalms. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Just to the right of of Psalms a little bit, over to chapter 7. And this is especially for younger people. It's for all of us. But I especially want to point for uh, the, the younger people who are here because it's much more tempting to want to pursue the happiness, to want to be around happy people, to want to be happy all the time. But here's what he says. Let's start in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 7. And this is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And he writes, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than, it's Hebrew parallelism, the day of death than the day of birth. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning, that's sadness, that's sorrow, than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. That's that's happiness of pleasure. So verse 2 says we get a better perspective of life at a funeral than we do at a party. I don't know if we've thought about it that way, but isn't that true? The end of all mankind is going to be death because it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. 
unless we're in Jesus. So the living will lay it to heart. We don't forget about it. We don't push it off to the side, pretend that life on earth is just going to last forever, that we're just going to be able to live it all up for as long as we want. Now, we still live lives of joy as Christians, but people of faith, believers will have more reverence for life, a, a better understanding about life, and, and more sorrow over what's wrong with life, the sin that has brought it all in, the consequences of sin. Believers are going to recognize that and, and will have a better, more realistic view of the world. Verse 3 says that sorrow is better than laughter. Now, how can that be? I mean, I think I would much rather laugh than cry. But it's by sadness that the heart is made glad. He says it's through sorrow that you get your mind reset. You start thinking about eternity and heaven rather than just this earthly life, this, these things that are transient, that are temporary. And that's where you find your real lasting joy, getting our minds in heaven, getting our minds on what's eternal where your heart is made glad. Because if you're always trying to live a life of happiness, if you're always trying to find happiness, well, two things usually happen. One, you won't really know how to deal with the reality, the trouble that comes, because it will come. We have that promise. And second, constant happiness becomes the norm. So if I'm always trying to be happy, and I'm trying to be happy and happy, and this becomes my norm, well, now that happy isn't happy anymore. It kind of just it gets lowered in my mind. So I've got to seek something else to try to be happy. And then I keep trying and keep trying. And, and it leads to essentially, ironically, constant disappointment. I can never find more happiness and a higher level of happiness and a, a higher level of I can never be made happier with what this world offers because it never gets better than what's here. So it's when you actually experience sadness, it's when you've, when you've met with sorrow, that when the time of sorrow is over, that the heart is made glad. Okay, I've, I've experienced the, the difficulty and the sadness, and now I've got not just the lows of life, but the highs of life, where God gives us things to enjoy. And, and that's what Solomon says, that he says, I commend joy. <laughs> that's a good thing, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. But it's in the proper time. Right? There's a time for sadness, a time for sorrow, and a time for joy. And so he says in verse 4, it's wiser to be in the house of mourning than with the partiers all the time. It's wiser, it's wisdom. So God has some very important instructions for us about life and about the reality of life and, and how we're not to be just ignoring the sadness and, and the consequences of sin and sin itself all around us. He's got some strong warnings even for his people in Isaiah 5, and, and we won't turn there, but, but they're the people that constantly are giving themselves over to drinking alcohol and in the parties and having the party and having a good time all the time, and they forget what God's Word says. It's a, it's a dangerous place to be, to always be looking to be happy, to be smiling and laughing when we haven't experienced and acknowledged that there is sadness, there is sorrow. Matthew 5, Jesus actually taught us that the ones who are truly happy, the blessed ones are those who mourn. Now, he's in context, are talking about sin, particularly our own sin. We're mourning over that, but sorrow and mourning should characterize believers uh, to a point. And that's why we have the, the instruction in Psalm 90 and, and the prayer to God. God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to know that we're not going to live here forever. Why? So that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
That's where wisdom is in, in sadness, in, in the temporary, transient nature of this, but the eternality of God and the goodness and the power of his goodness forever. That's where our minds should be. So we're back in Genesis 23, but we're remembering the promise of John 16. You will have trouble in this world. But he also said in that verse, rather than trying to escape it, we experience it. And he said, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. And so he doesn't say there's going to be trouble in this world. You're on your own to figure out how to get through it. He says, come to me, because in me you'll have peace. Take heart, I have overcome the world. How did Jesus do that? Well, because in Isaiah 53 it says he was a man acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. And he was acquainted with grief. He knew it from experience. And one of the greatest truths about God, we need to understand one of the greatest truths we find out about God in 2 Corinthians 1 is that God is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And if we didn't need comfort in this world, we wouldn't need God to be the God of comfort or to be the Father of mercies. He wouldn't have revealed himself as that if we didn't need that. He, we, we need his comfort. We need to be in God. We need to be in Jesus for peace and not afraid of sorrow. We need to be not afraid of people who are feeling down, but going to them and sharing with them the goodness of God, the peace of Jesus, and his comfort. See, that's where we get a better perspective of life and the world all around us, not just when we're all having a good time. Those are good times. Those are, we're thankful for those. And... and Lord willing, we'll have more of those, but not shying away from sorrow, from sadness. See, that's how we can be so heavenly minded that we are of earthly good, sharing with those around us and and coming to them in their time of need and helping them, loving them, and others coming to us in our time of need and helping us. That's how we can be of, of real good as believers. So Christians facing real life are sorrowful in the appropriate times. But number two, What Abraham models for us here in verses 3 through 13 is that real-life believers facing real life who are heavenly-minded are respectful. They're respectful of other people. One of the aspects of Abraham's transformed character of faith, and it just stands out, it, it comes off of the pages here, is his respectfulness. Even while he's dealing with difficult making arrangements for his wife's burial, he's respectful of the people. Notice his humility. He comes before them and he does not say, look, guys, I've got a war record of 1-0 and o against a powerful military, right? You've got to know who you're dealing with. He doesn't come in spelling out his qualifications. Look how great of a leader I am. Look how many people I have in my household. I've got wealth. I've got good business sense. There's no pride as he comes in to the gate of the city. Or this one. You know, God gave me all this land already. <laughs> Y'all are on this on borrowed time, so... Pay attention to what I want to do, right? I mean, that's not what he does. And, and we know of professing Christians who use that, right? God told me to do this. God, God gave this to me to do or to say, or, or, and you need to get out of my way, right? Get in line or get out of the way. I spoke with a lady one time who was absolutely certain that God had told her something to say. She said, God gave me this word and I need to give it to you. I need to tell you what he told me. And she, be- she began to tell me what it was and it was about some certain circumstances, but it turned out that they were all based on something that never happened. It was something that wasn't true. 
And so I pointed that out to her. I said, you know, it's demonstrably in error. It's factually incorrect. God would not have given you a word <laughs> that was wrong or it was based on something that wasn't true. But she never skipped a beat. She just kept on going. No, I've got <laughs> I've to say this. I've got to share this with you. It's the wrong kind of attitude. It's the wrong kind of heart to go barging into people and say, look, you got to listen because God told me to say this. God told me to do this. Because Abraham really did have the word of God who said, this will be your land. But he didn't even come in with those words saying to them, look, this is all my land. God told me. Now, we do need to be absolutely certain of God's word. His his word, not words that we think that we hear or, or words that we, that we want to hear, but we can be certain of this word, and, and we need to be, but we don't go pushing our way around and to be rude toward other people with it, right? He lowers himself in humility before them, and he acts respectfully. Verse 4, he says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Sojourner means temporary resident. A foreigner. He wasn't born here. He doesn't belong here, right? He rises before them in verses 3 and 7. He bows before them, verses 7 and 12. And they all know who he is. They know he's an important guy. In fact, if you noticed, every time somebody addresses Abraham in this passage, in this chapter, they call him Lord, my Lord, my Lord. Not, not Lord in the sense of like a God, but a very important person. No, look, my Lord, <laughs> this is what we want to do. They're respecting him, and they acknowledge he's a prince of God among them. That's exactly the opposite of a sojourner and a foreigner. You're important. Have the best of what's ours, they say. They respect him as one of high rank. He's blessed by God, prince of God. They've seen God's blessings on him. They've seen his protection. And yet Abraham comes across as very respectful. He's honoring these people. Who are these people? Well, they're, they're part of the growing Hittite empire. And, and the, the empire itself had, didn't ever expand this far south into the, the Canaan, this part of the promised land. But they were part of being, uh, they were part of those people. And so they weren't weak people, but they recognized who he is. And, and he could have taken that for his benefit. Well, yeah, you're right. I guess I am pretty important. <laughs> Here's what I think we should do. But he maintains respect for their customs, for their traditions. As he makes arrangements for his wife, he says, okay, let's do this the way that it needs to be done. Let's, let's do it respectfully. And let's do it with honor. And they say space is, is available in, in existing tombs, but Abraham wants his own. If Ron offers the cave, Abraham wants. He says, you can have it for free. But it's probably not a genuine offer. We, we, we understand that this is probably the, the cultural, the Eastern way of making a polite offer that you're supposed to refuse and, and then come back with with a price. But whether it was genuine or not, Abraham does turn it down. He says, I'll pay the full price for it. He's going out of his way to model respectfulness, even in such a difficult time for himself personally. But as Christians, again, what we're, we've, I don't know if we've said this before, but we're, we, need, we need to understand that what we are told in the New Testament so often we see modeled or pictured in the Old Testament. And, and what we're told in the New Testament, as we studied First Peter together, you may remember in, second, in First Peter 2.17, is the simple command to honor everyone. The word honor is respect. To hold in high regard, honor, respect everybody. That's the command, and, and we're told it in the New Testament. We see it modeled in the Old Testament. So it's clear that believers, Christians, in real life are called to be, commanded to be respectful and courteous. 
So we follow the customs, the traditions, the laws of our culture. As long as they don't directly violate God's scripture, we go along with these things and, and we keep our minds directed toward heaven, but we, we remain respectful to those around us. And so real Christians facing real life are sorrowful and they're respectful. Number three, in verses 14 and through 16, we see that believers are self-forgetful. They're self-forgetful. The negotiations for the cave continue. And we actually see Ephron offer to Abraham the whole field, not just the cave. Remember, Abraham had asked for the cave. He said, I'd like you to ask for the cave, which is at the end of the field that belongs to Ephron. Ephron says, no, we're going we're gonna to do the whole field. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm going to offer you the whole field. So when he offers it for free, Abraham says, no, I'm going to pay for it, verse 13. And Ephron now needs to give him the price. What's supposed to happen when he gives Abraham the price is that Abraham will say, well, that's too much. Here's my price. And then Ephron will say, okay, I'll come down a little bit. And then Abraham will come up a little bit. And then they'll, they'll haggle. They're supposed to haggle. But because Abraham had already said, I'll pay the full price, well, now he's got to stick to his word, right? He's got to stick to his word. So it could be that Ephron extended the transaction to include the whole field, not just the cave, just to take advantage of Abraham. Hey, look, you already said you were going to pay the whole price. Well, I, I, I'm not just going to sell the field, the, the cave. You need the whole field. So Abraham's now got to, to do that. He's going to take advantage of Abraham. And it's terrible to do in the middle of his grief and his suffering. You know, I'm trying to bury my wife here. Ephron apparently just wants to get what he can out of it. So here, Abraham is not here to look out for himself. He's not here to, to remember himself and to stick up for himself and demand his rights. He's a believer, a man of faith. He's going to remain true to his word. And even when Ephron changes the deal for the field instead of the cave and names a ridiculously high price of 400 shekels of silver, he's going to go along with it. He's going to go with it. Abraham forgoes his rights to barter, and he agrees. He, in fact, he reverse bartered. You know, they said, we'll give it to you for free. No, I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> well, how about 400? Okay. He, he does the opposite of that. Now, as for how much 400 shekels of silver really was or how big the field was, we're not told. But for Abraham to pay the whole amount meant that he was either incompetent in business, <laughs> he didn't know what it meant, or he was trying to show them something about faith in the Lord, a life lived in faith to the Lord. He's self-forgetful. And people in our culture would look at that and say, Abraham, how weak, how pathetic that you would do that. You've you got to stand up for yourself. You can't, you can't let people take advantage of you like that. Now, there are times that it is right for us to stand up for the sake of judgment. We're not called to be perpetual doormats, right? I mean, it's, it's right for us to take a stand and to make sure that people aren't just, we're enabling them to take advantage of us or other people. That's all right. That's true. But in wisdom, for the sake of the gospel, reaching people, we can intentionally allow sometimes some people to take advantage of us for the sake of the gospel, to let people know. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians, he spent an entire chapter, chapter 9, on this very thing. He said he had rights like all other Christians. You know, he, he, 
shouldn't he be allowed to do whatever he wanted, to go wherever he wanted, to eat meat, to drink when he wanted to, to get married, to, to be paid for ministry? He even says God commands that those who are in ministry full-time be paid for it. But he said, I'm denying myself of all of those rights. I'm denying all of those rights so that I can present the gospel without charge and without offending anybody. That was his special calling in ministry, to provide for himself. He didn't have a family. To provide for himself and, and to, to be able to preach and proclaim the gospel without charging anybody and to forgo all of his other rights. See, we can choose to be taken advantage of so that we can get the gospel into people's lives, into their minds and their hearts. We can choose to leave our own rights behind. And the question is, what would stand out more in our culture? <laughs> what would be more recognizable in a culture, yet one more person standing up for himself or herself and demanding their rights, or a person who says, you know what, because I am a follower of Jesus, and I want you to know about him and his love, I, I'm going to go along with this. I'm going to let you take advantage of me, because I'm, I, I want you to know that I follow the Lord Jesus. Romans 15 has some important words for us along these same lines. And you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. We're just going to read three verses. Paul says that we who are strong in our faith, we who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And we recognize the culture, the, the context there was talking about believers, brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister. Okay, that's the context, but we're never turning our life of, of living for Jesus off. <laughs> we don't stop doing that. And the example that Paul gives is of Jesus who gave himself for us when we deserved reproach, we, we deserved judgment. Jesus gave himself for us in our place to take those. And so we're not out to please ourselves, we're, we're out for, for the other people's good, the, our neighbor's good around us, not, not their perceived good. We're not trying to please everybody and, and become people pleasers, but we are becoming those who are, are trying to build people up, build them up in their faith. And if they have no faith, then, then share with them the gospel, the word of God that brings faith. The, the characteristic of our life in Christ, that we're constantly living for the, the glory of the Lord, for others' benefit. So we're self-forgetful. Even if it costs us a lot, even, even if it's difficult for us, so that others may be built up, even if we're taken advantage of, we believe. We have our minds in heaven. And, and again, this isn't always. We're not telling everybody that they need to just lay down and be doormats. But sometimes we can do that intentionally for the purpose of glorifying our God. Well, verse 16 is another trait that Abraham shows us, that he lives for us, for believers who are facing real life that are heavenly minded, and that is truthful. That we're truthful. Number four means truthful. He says, after agreeing to the high price of the whole field, and he only wanted the cave. <laughs> no, I just want the cave, but he gets the whole field. What he could have done, he could have worked the system at this point. He could have said, all right, 400 shekels. Let's take this offline. Let's go in the back room back here, and I've got some weights that are not quite honest, and I can end up paying a little bit less than 400 shekels. So he, he, would, he could actually give less. But look what he does instead in verse 16. He weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, 
according to the weights current among the merchants. I mean, it's probably a, a, a high conversion rate <laughs> at, at this point, but whatever the, whatever the rate is, he says, look, there's no games, there's, nothing, there's no funny business going on, everything's on the level, everything's, everything's open and honest, and I'm going to use the weights and the measures that are current, and we're just going to make sure this is exactly what I said, and it's going to be truthful. He's honest, he's open. And we understand that's a, another command from Jesus in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember he was systematically ripping apart the legalism that, that the false uh, religious leaders had, had given and, and the outward man effort righteousness, which is worth nothing in God's eyes. He says one of the areas that, God, that Jesus destroys there is playing games with your oaths, with your, with your word. The religious leader said, if you swear to God, well, that means you have to do it. But if you just tell somebody, well, you, you don't have to do it necessarily. Jesus says, no, don't swear. Don't take an oath at all. Don't swear to God. Don't swear to heaven. Don't swear on earth or Jerusalem or even by your own life. He's like, you can't even change the color of the hair on your head. Now, we know that we can today, but not permanently, right? You can't even, you can't control your own life. He says in Matthew five thirty-seven, let you let what you say simply be yes or no, right? Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, this is simple enough. We understand this. Okay, I should be speaking honestly and openly. I should be, you know, when I say yes, it, whether I say I swear or I promise or, or anything else, you know, it's an oath. If I said that, then I should do it, right? Or if I said no, then, then I won't. But it's not just speaking the truth all the time, but living the truth. So ask yourself, you know, are there times when I'm different when I'm around other people? When I'm with certain people, do I start acting differently? Do I start to change how I act, who I am, how I speak? Or am I the same person all the time? Do I act holy at church, but then just like my unbelieving friends when I'm with them? Because that's not letting your yes be yes and your no, no, and just simply yes and no. That's yes sometimes, <laughs> and sort of, almost. See, being truthful, living a life that's truthful means so much more than just saying yes or no and never swearing or taking an oath or promising anything. You've got Psalm 15 in your notes, and I encourage you to read Psalm 15. and It's five verses, so it's not long. But just the picture, the instruction that it gives Christians for honesty, for truthfulness, it's a picture of a real-life believer living out a heavenly-minded truth from inside. And we won't go to that because we need to move on to number five. After Christians, believers facing real life, being sorrowful and respectful and self-forgetful and truthful, they are also finally hopeful. Number five, we're also hopeful, verses 17 to 20, because even though we've got the reality of life and the truth of everything that's just falling apart and so many things that, be going, that seem to be going the wrong way, we're also full of hope. We have hope because the cave, the field, the trees were all made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before everybody who went in and out. This is official legal language that says, Abraham, you now own a piece of the promised land. Now, Abraham wouldn't have done that if he didn't believe in God's promises. He'd have headed back to Ur. He'd have said, look, our homeland is back in Ur. Sarah, I'm going I'm to bury her back home. But his home was now in the promised land where God said, this is where you're going to live. 
And it's official. He owns that. And in, sure, in case we're not sure that that's what kind of the idea here in these final verses, it's almost virtually repeated in verse 20. Again, the field, the cave that was in it were made over to Abraham as property. That's important because eagle, Abraham legally owns now this piece of the promised land. And it's only a piece of the whole that God will give his descendants. And Abraham will never own the whole thing in his life. But it is here in Canaan. It's the beginning of what God has promised to give them. Again, Abraham's looking and he's seeing it from afar. He's saying it's going to be revealed. It's going to be fulfilled. He's just at the very beginning of it. Sarah's buried here. Abraham will later be buried here. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried here. Jacob and Leah will all be buried here. Abraham owns it and he's content with it. Why? Again, because of what we read in Hebrews 11, because he's looking for that better home. He's, he's believing God's promises, and he may not get every bit of that physical land right now, but he knows his descendants will, and he knows that he's got a heavenly home where God is calling him to. That's a great promise. We talked about that difficult promise that there's going to be trouble in this world. Do we believe this promise that he's going to call us home to a better home? Or do we believe it just as much? Both of those promises. Some questions for us to consider. Are, are you convinced of this, these promises, of God's faithfulness, of what he says he will do? Is your hope placed in the word of God, his promises? Or are you looking for happiness here? Are you, are you always trying to avoid sorrow? I want happiness here. Or, or I want respect from others. I'm going to demand it and make it all about respect for me. Are you always looking out for number one? I want to make sure that I get what I think I should have, Right? Are you always looking for ways to hold something back? Make sure you get a little off the top, you know. It's not illegal unless you get caught. <laughs> um, I just want to get what I can get out of this life before I'm gone. Are you looking for how to endure this life and deal with disappointment with the resources that are here in this world that'll fail, that, that won't fulfill, that won't get you through? Or are we following the example, the steps of our Lord and Savior, being acquainted with grief, knowing sorrow, experiencing sadness, and running to Him for peace, running to the God of all comfort because you believe His promises, because you know what He says. He's, you, know, you, you know those promises that He's molding you and shaping you into the image of Jesus, and He's not just getting heaven ready for you, He's getting you ready for heaven. We're, we're believing these promises. Are you always seeking to be respectful to the people around you? Because you know that your heavenly Father has been respectful, has been kind, has been so good, rather than demanding that people respect me, am I being respectful of the people around me because I know that that brings glory and honor and praise to God? Rather than always looking out for number one, am I willing to sacrifice, even allow myself to be wronged for the sake of seeing someone come to Jesus in the gospel? Are you honest about everything, even if it brings hurt to you? And that's what Psalm 15 talks about. You know, you, even, even when it brings hurt to you, you're fulfilling your word. You're doing what you said. Because nothing will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I'm holding that promise. And I know that even if things get hard, even if I get, even if I get ripped off and things are unjust, I, I, I believe in these promises. Are you finding your hope in the promises of God, seeking his kingdom first, watching for the return of Jesus because you know that heaven's forever and it's so much better than what's here. In other words, are you so heavenly minded that you are of earthly and heavenly good? Our application, 
what we take from here is, is this question that we've been considering over and over. Has, has faith, faith in the living God through Jesus, has that invaded every area of your life? What parts of everyday life are you holding on to rather than trusting God with? You know, oh, well, I'll trust him when things get hard. Or I sing praises when things are good. But what about in the everyday? Am I turning life over to him? Do I trust him? The application we have comes from Colossians 3, 2, where we're, we're told, we're instructed by God, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Let's put our mind on the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We're setting our minds upward, intentionally, on, on purpose, getting our minds not in the clouds, but higher than that, up into heaven where Jesus is. Because in those verses, the, the verses that follow, and I encourage you again to read these and study these verses, when our minds are on here on the earth, we live our old life of sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and even lying. That's quite a list when our minds are earthly, when they're set here on earth. But when we are heavenly minded in Colossians 3, we put on as God's chosen holy and beloved creatures, we put, that's how we put on compassionate hearts. That's how we put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness, and all the rest that's there. That's how we live real-life Christianity, with our minds upward, so that we can be of earthly and heavenly good for the glory of our God. Father, we pray that you would work that out in our lives, in our minds, starting in our minds and hearts, God. Lord, we thank you that you are so good, that you are so faithful, and that you are true. Father, I pray, we ask, and we know that you will answer this prayer because you've said this is your will, that you would make us more like Jesus. God, that you would mold us and sculpt us and shape us. Lord, that you'd, as, as Jesus is preparing a home for us and, and that we claim his promise, we know his promise, we believe your word that he will come back for us to bring us to that home. God, we pray that you would also prepare us for that home. Lord, that you would keep us, that you'd keep us secure. God, that you'd comfort us, that we would look to you in peace and comfort in love because you are the great God and you are the good God in Jesus' name.